Hi everyone, David here. Thank you so much for listening to What Matters. We hope you enjoy the show. Before we begin, if you and maybe some of your colleagues would like premium access to the What Matters podcast and want to read or listen to the essential in-depth journalism from Foresight Climate and Energy, make sure to subscribe. You can try us for 30 days for less than one euro a day, which will give you access to our website and app. Just follow the link in the show notes or go to www.foresightdk.com forward slash subscribe to find out more. Hello and welcome to episode 20 of What Matters, the podcast from Foresight Climate and Energy, all about creating a decarbonized economy. I'm David Weston and with me today is Jan Rosenau of the Regulatory Assistance Project. Hi Jan. Hi Dave. I can't believe we've made it to 20 episodes already. I know it's amazing, right? Um, we got to hit 100 at some point, I'm sure. It's It's been running now for what, about nine, 10 months, I think? Nine, yeah, nearly a year. Yeah, coming up to a year, which would be great. We'll um, have to celebrate that with a, an amazing episode or maybe catching up on the last uh, year uh, and going through what we've learned. Of course, we have an amazing episode today as well. Um, sadly, Michaela is ill today and she can't be with us, but we wish her a speedy recovery and hope she's back with us soon. It seems like there's a new policy package around every day at the moment, both at an EU level and a national government level. It must be difficult for some to keep up, particularly for those working in the sector. Our guest today is Marion Labatou, Deputy Director of European Affairs at EDF. Marion, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Uh, Marion, the EU has proposed several measures in recent months in response to the energy crisis, particularly, um, and then obviously the war in uh, Russia and Ukraine, um, still recovering from the pandemic. Uh, we've had communication on energy price, repower EU, save gas for safe winter. Uh, new measures around uh, were announced mid-September as part of the State of EU address. We had Fit for 55. How do you evaluate overall the EU's response to the current energy price crisis? Um, overall, the response was quite fast. Uh, if you look back, already in October last year, uh, we had a toolbox uh, issued by the European Commission to guide member states in their reaction to already pretty high uh, prices. Uh, but I think it took a little bit of, of time for everyone, including the EU institutions, to understand that these high prices would last would last for quite a long time because initially everybody thought that in spring we would be out of it. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, in February, the war in Ukraine uh, came and, um, and everyone in Brussels understood that we were in for probably a year, two years, three years of high energy prices. And obviously, this has to change the nature of the response, uh, the nature of the measures taken to help uh, consumers. Uh, the European Commission uh, made a very strong attempt to coordinate member states' measures and responses. As you said, as, as you said uh, there is a gas uh, storage a package, a gas demand reduction, uh, repower EU, and now a package of short-term measures. Um, but what we also see that there is a need to go fast and to go fast, uh, this means that you give more flexibility to member states. Uh, that's the way uh, the EU works, uh, I guess. Um, so, for instance, on this cap on inframarginal rents, uh, there is, of course, an uh, EU announcement. Uh, but I guess that what we will see next week is a package that leaves a lot of flexibility to member states. So that's good to go fast, but we have to be careful that, uh, you know, in, to go faster, we don't introduce we don't introduce risks to to the electricity market and we don't 
jeopardize what what works quite well. If I could just follow up on that, um, Marion, because um, you know, there are a lot of discussions about market reform uh, going on in uh, Brussels, but also at member state level, um, yeah, in particular in places such as Spain, for example, but also France, um, yeah, Germany. And we hear sort of calls um, for a whole range of proposals, you know, decoupling the market, sort of splitting it into two different parts where you have one part There will be low carbon generators and the other one will be fossil. Uh, we hear about windfall taxes um, that will be applied and then the revenues will be used for maybe subsidizing gas generation or giving rebates to consumers. What, what's, what do you make of all of this, given that you know, the current market design that we operate in has really been um, you know, put together quite organically over more than 20 years in Europe. And, and now we have this huge challenge dealing with the crisis and these calls for, we got to reform markets right now to help people with high prices. Where do you sit in that debate? Um, do you see more risks or do you see more opportunities? I think we still have to differentiate between short-term probably they're going to be medium-term uh, emergency uh, measures and what we would call a longer-term market design uh, reform. And I think it's important to differentiate the two approaches because redesigning the electricity market in the middle of the biggest energy crisis uh, in, in Europe in, in the last uh, 20 or 30 years uh, might be a little bit um, risky. But on the on the short-term measures, I think what, what we have to keep in mind is that this is a crisis of gas supply. This is a crisis of gas supply. So my take is that the short-term measures should rather tackle uh, gas because the gas uh, price is what drives uh, up uh, electricity um, prices. So I would like to see maybe more measures targeting, you know, the oil and gas uh, sector. It's politically uh, nice and powerful to go for the revenues of the electric utilities. But right now, what's on the table is not is not very well uh, designed because it looks at, you know, production revenues, not taking into account that many utilities will lose amazing amounts of money on the retail side because many consumers will not be able to pay their bills because some some uh, suppliers have sold fixed contracts uh, at a certain price and now they have to source energy at a higher price. So I think it would be worth having a much more integrated uh, approach and um, you know going a little bit beyond uh, the nice uh, political announcements. Uh, going for the gas price, what, what would it mean? In our view, uh, it could be interesting to have a cap on gas price for electricity generation for a certain period of time to cool down the, the electricity prices, cool down the future uh, market. So that's you know, what's the price if you buy electricity for next year, for example, which is extremely high right now because there is this feeling that there will not be enough electricity, that there will not be enough gas. So that, in our view, would work, but it would need to be implemented at EU level because if you do that uh, in a in a, in a patchwork manner uh, in, in the different member states, you're going to have um, detrimental effects on, on the market uh, in terms of, you know, how much energy goes from one country to the other, uh, what are the exports to outside of Europe. So 
there are some some elements that need to be fixed. Otherwise, you may end up with an increase of, of gas consumption for electricity generation, which is not uh, really what, what we want to achieve there. Um, so that's on, on the short-term uh, measures. Um, and of course, you know, demand reduction, demand response, this needs to, to happen. It's, it's extremely uh, important. Looking at the, at the longer-term market design, I think this crisis allowed everyone to realize that um, to realize how the electricity market works. So that's that's positive. Um, and also that being linked only to the very short-term market is not is not sufficient and it can have a very strong impact if prices go up. And we see it in Spain. They had this very quick reaction. Why? Because half of the population was on dynamic price that changes every hour and linked uh, to, to, to the to the to the spot price so they were hit immediately by by the crisis when in other countries um, the the consumers were protected by the let's say the hedging strategies of of the suppliers with a much more long-term approach so I think this idea that you need a more stable market a more stable link between suppliers and consumers um, longer-term uh, investment signals uh, for low-carbon generation, renewable generation. These ideas are progressing in Brussels. We think at EDF that this is good and this should be the basis of the discussion and options uh, for uh, a review of the of the market design going forward. It's a really good point, um, Marion. And I, you know, I, I, I think you highlighted some of the risks already uh, that exist. I mean, one thing that we see is that are building on what you said about your unintended consequences, maybe even increasing the use of, of gas generation in, in Europe, is also that your reforms that are not well thought through could potentially make the business case uh, for low-carbon generation technologies uh, worse and maybe risk investment in, in those because your markets will be um, risk averse. And and that's something that we see. Is is, is that a risk you, you, you kind of see as well from your perspective as you're working for one of the biggest electricity producers in Europe? I would say if that, that if we if we know that the measures what what the measures uh, are and uh, for how long they will last, I guess that the impact will be fairly limited on investment decisions. But but now in the last few days we start to see very strong reactions from the renewable uh, industry. For example, Wind Europe uh, came out yesterday uh, asking for um, a single cap on on revenues. Uh, as you know, uh, the Commission has put forward this proposal to limit the revenues of of low carbon assets. So instead of getting the market price, you would get 180 euros per megawatt hour, and the rest would be uh, given to the state to help consumers. What uh, what we see in the in the current text is that 180 euros per megawatt hour is some sort of reference, but that member states would be free to set any kind of level below that, and probably to change it over time if if they wish uh, to do so. And this is what introduces, I think, uncertainty and a big risk because you you don't really know what the measure is. Of course, I mean, if the cap is 180 or if it's 85, this makes a huge difference to your business uh, plan and um, and to your uh, revenues if you're a merchant uh, renewable project selling your planning to sell your electricity on the market. So I think having shorter measures is needed, but if, if you leave them too open and, and you leave too much uncertainty, then of course market players will will feel uh, this uncertainty and and just decide to to wait before they make a final investment decision. 
yeah, that's of course the last thing we need right now. You know, we need to accelerate um, deployment and um, yeah, build out more uh, generation that is not not gas based um, to to mitigate you know, the constraints that we have. Um, so I I think I think that's a that's a really important point that that you make there. Uh, is is there um, consensus you think that's sufficient amongst the member states as to what the way forward looks like? You you said you know it's important that we are sort of relatively consistent. You know we give enough flexibility to member states, but we're also consistent enough um, so we don't have uh, your sort of odd situations where the situation in one member state is very different than in another, and 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 there's sort of you know, conflicts between those different market designs. Um, or do you, or do you think uh, that that is something the Commission is already well aware of and will be um, yeah, prevented? I think there is a principle of uh, of reality uh, here. Uh, there is a huge political pressure for the Commission to come out with something for for the member states to adopt uh, what looks like a, a European uh, emergency uh, measure, but if it is not possible because they have to go fast to, to define very precisely the scope of the intervention uh, in the market. For example, should this um, cap on the revenues apply only to shorter markets or also to forward markets? What I said at the beginning, uh, do you uh, target individual power plants? Do you ta target a product a portfolio um, from a producer? Do you look at the overall revenues of a company? If this is not possible uh, to if it's not possible to define that at, at European level, then then it's better to to let you know um, utility, utilities and, and member states discuss the exact um, the exact scope and uh, and, uh, and and way forward on on these extremely important uh, details. Uh, Marion, how has sort of we've we've spoken a lot about sort of the European level? What about businesses? Are they able to keep up with it? Are the utilities and power companies like like EDF? Um, how have they reacted to all of these new rules coming out? Um, and are they able to keep up? And how has it affected sort of their business in the last six months to a year? I think I would take take a, a step back on on this question. Um, I think the impact of the measures varies um, greatly uh, depending on the on the utilities, uh, on their portfolio, and on the measures that already uh, exist, that on, on the measures that are already in place at um, at member state level. Uh, for example, in Spain, they you know they already have a cap on on uh, on gas to produce electricity. They already have um, a cap on the inframarginal uh, revenues. So probably the impact of additional measures um, may be uh, a little bit uh, lower. In France, uh, as you know. Uh, most of the consumers uh, are shielded from high prices. The government has announced uh, last week that uh, the overall increase of electricity and gas bills would be limited to 15% in 2023. Um, in France, there is also this uh, mechanism through which uh, EDF sells the nuclear generation at a price which is regulated, uh, which is already in a way uh, capping the, the revenues. We're, we're not selling this electricity at, at market price. So what I want to say there is, is that really depending on, on the systems already in place, uh, these measures may have uh, different sorts of, of impacts. 
Sure. Uh, but do you see the measures that are currently in place that they are having an impact and they are um, both solving the energy price crisis, but also, um, and I wanted to kind of get back onto the energy transition here, is it also helping the decarbonization of the energy uh, system? Or have we maybe taken a step back in the last sort of six months because of the energy price crisis uh, and the energy transition has taken more of a backseat? Well, on, on, the, on the first part of your uh, question, I think that what is uh, proposed right now, this uh, cap on, on the revenues, it will have no impact on electricity prices in the market, in the wholesale market. What we what is hoped is that there will be sufficient amounts of money collected uh, to help um, consumers and to reduce their bills. I'm not really sure that uh, we will achieve that because probably the amount of money that will be collected once the scope of the measure is right uh, will will probably not be sufficient to completely help uh, all segments of, of customers. Uh, we've seen it in Spain. Uh, the government thought that they would collect uh, very high amounts of money and the result is much lower than uh, what they, they thought uh, initially. So probably more measures will be discussed. I'm pretty sure of that. I think a discussion on, on capping the price of gas in one way or another will, will come back in the, in the next few weeks to actually lower the prices because a cap on revenues will not lower market prices. Um, now, going back to your uh, to your point on the energy transition, um, I think there are two sides of, of the coin. On the one hand, you can say uh, we are having very high energy prices. So you see already the demand uh, reacting. You see um, people and companies making plans to, in the longer term to, to switch to, to, a, to a heat pump, for instance. But that takes time so i think we have to you know go through this crisis make sure that uh, that we we shield uh, consumers that uh, businesses do not do not close that we do not have a huge social crisis out of it and that we take the lessons of it and and go forward in the uh, in the energy transition in electrification heat pumps uh, in in electric uh, mobility because this crisis can be a turn in the right direction, but it can also, you know, lock in um, fossil assets for a longer time. That's what we see. Uh, many, comp- many, many member states have uh, brought back uh, coal fire plants uh, because there is a security of, of supply issue. So we, we need uh, to, to solve the security of supply issue as soon as possible, mitigate prices for consumers and, and very fast go back uh, to, to the main objective, which is uh, decarbonization through electrification. Is there a way that we can increase security of supply in a way that doesn't damage the energy transition? As in, if we're locking in, if we're locking in gas assets much longer, if we're locking in, which you say we're bringing back coal, um, some nuclear plants have been extended. The lifetimes of some nuclear plants have been extended when they'd previously been um, penciled into to shut down in the next sort of year or so. Is there a way that we can increase that security of supply now without damaging the energy transition in the long term? Well, I think that keeping uh, the nuclear power plants uh, running and not closing them if they can uh, if they can run, uh, that's uh, a no regret option. And uh, it is positive that some member states, even though they are clearly opposed to nuclear, are taking this very pragmatic uh, step because it is 
um, uh, low carbon generation uh, asset. It can produce uh, flat out uh, in in a base load mode. So why would we um, why 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 would we uh, not uh, take uh, these these kind of uh, easy uh, decisions? So that's that's one point. Now. Um, I think the situation we are in is is the result of past uh, decisions and historical decisions. Uh, some member states decided to be more reliant on on uh, on Russian uh, gas. Uh, we've had some delays as well in renewable investments because uh, permitting takes too long. It takes ten years uh, to build an offshore wind park in France. It takes eight eight years to build onshore wind because of permitting. So we we were delayed, I think, in this um, in this transition, and we were caught a little bit off guard. I mean, we knew it that we had this dependency, but we didn't think uh, it it would um, cause uh, so many problems in in the short uh, time. So that's a little bit the the situation. So now we have to go through the winter. Uh, I guess that once you have prolonged uh, the nuclear, you you try to accelerate on the on the on the renewables. You lower the demand. Well, the last resort is to uh, turn on gas power plants and uh, and coal power plants. But um, but this should not last uh, for for too long. We should continue the acceleration on the low carbon uh, part of it. Marion, I would like to um, get your take on an argument that. Yeah, we keep hearing uh, from those people who are skeptical or even opposed to the energy transition in Europe, and that goes like like this. You know, they sort of argue that because we have built out renewables that are uh, variable, you know, the, the sun doesn't always shine, the wind doesn't always blow. We needed all that gas uh, to balance the system, and that got us into this dependency on on gas imports from other countries. So had we stuck you know, with uh, other forms of generation, that wouldn't be the case. How do you respond to those those arguments? Are, are, are there is there any any um, evidence that supports them, or do, do, yeah, what's your take on them? I think this is a, a very uh, you know a basic uh, anti-renewable uh, uh, argument. So I'm not sure we should take that too uh, too seriously um, there is another option huh? nuclear can uh, modulate its uh, its production and uh, you see that in countries that have bet on nuclear like France uh, you have a development of renewables and and a much lower reliance on, on gas so you know the development of, of renewables uh, does not necessarily go with huge amount of, of thermal generation you may need a little bit to balance out the system and for picking uh, moments but it, it's not let's say, um, the only solution uh, to, uh, to, to have uh, lots of uh, thermal uh, assets. So I think going forward, we, we need to look at um, all kinds of decarbonized solutions, renewables, uh, including hydropower, which plays a very important role because it is not intermittent like, like solar and wind. We need to look at nuclear um, with, uh, with, you know, pragmatism uh, and less ideology maybe uh, because the volumes are, are huge and uh, nuclear could could replace large amounts of fossil uh, assets in the in the system we need to look at at storage going forward and also flexibility options uh, i think that uh, you know pumped storage batteries but also demand side flexibility will be part of a, of a fully uh, decarbonized system and marion you mentioned a few minutes ago, electrification, and uh, that's something 
that you see as critical for the transition and you also mentioned heat pumps in particular you can can you sort of lay out why you think electrification is 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 so important and what needs to happen uh, to actually make this a reality you know as you say we we are seeing an increase in the deployment rate of uh, end use technologies that are electric but not at the right speed yet um, so how can we actually move from where we are today where you know in the in the transport and building sector the amount of electricity that's being used is still relatively small yeah the, the reason why electrification is key is because uh, electricity is at the moment the most decarbonized uh, energy vector that that we have it's already 60% decarbonized at eu level with some differences across member states, but we largely know how to decarbonize electricity. And that's what I said before. We have renewables, we have nuclear, we have flexibility, uh, we have storage. So the the technologies are mature. Uh, They need to uh, be accelerated. And combined with um, high energy efficiency efforts, we think that it is possible to have in the future, sufficient amounts of decarbonized electricity to electrify other sectors. Because to decarbonize um, heating, to decarbonize transport, which today rely largely on gas and uh, oil, I would say that electrification is really uh, the way the way forward, and it's much more efficient as an energy vector uh, than uh, hydrogen, uh, for instance. So I really believe that this is uh, the way to go. And I would be very happy to hear uh, Jan on this because he's the true heat pump uh, expert. Um, but that will bring a lot of uh, efficiency in the, um, in, the, in, the, in the system. Now, what, uh, what we see is uh, difficulties, especially for heat pumps in the, in the financing, because it, there is a, a large investment at the beginning, and then you recover your investments through uh, savings because heat pumps are so efficient, so your energy bill uh, goes down. But the, the investment is recovered uh, over time. Uh, now, if electricity prices stay, stay so high, the investment will be recovered uh, faster. So maybe that, that will be a little bit uh, easier. Um, but Jan, can I, can I bring you in on, on, on that point? I think you're a true supporter of electrification. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I partly asked the question because I was interested in sort of hearing you, uh, you sort of talk about it and how, how, you, how you frame it. Um, but, you know, c- clearly I've been making the case for electrification for a long time now. And the main reason is that the two parts, actually. One reason is that it allows us to use your electricity directly from low-carbon sources. Uh, That's the point you made, Marion. I think the second is the efficiency. So an an electric vehicle uses about three times less energy than an internal combustion engine vehicle. And and a heat pump um, uses... Um, yeah, significantly less less energy. About yeah, depending on how efficient it is and wh- where you deploy it, but it could be three, four times less energy that's being used to generate the same amount of heat. So it's it's kind of the ability to use green um, electricity directly and the very high efficiency uh, that these technologies have when it's being used. Uh, so that, that that's sort of why you know I feel electrification is so so key and and in fact you know all of the scenarios whether you know they're being developed by the IEA or by the European Commission or by uh, universities they they all, they all show that electrification is a very significant part in the 
overall um, fuel mix that we're going to see in 2030, 2040, 2050. And that is, is I think, now undisputable. So we, we're seeing global electricity demand potentially doubling, tripling even uh, in some region that might be even more than that. So that, that is got to be a very significant part uh, of, of, of the solution. And I think it's becoming more and more accepted now also by policymakers. I mean, we're seeing some pretty bold steps, don't we, from sort of national governments doing things that um, a few years ago would be um, yeah, impossible and, and people would have thought would never be uh, on the cards. But now we have outright bans of internal combustion engine vehicles uh, being considered and being implemented in various places. And the same is now happening in the heating sector where countries like Germany, for example, or the Netherlands uh, have announced outright bans of installing uh, new gas boilers, for example. So I, I think there's a lot of things happening in that space, um, but it's going to take a lot of effort. Uh, as you say, there's an upfront cost to all of this, and we need to direct investment in the deployment of these technologies. Is this something that the, the private sector can do to help with that deployment, uh, Marianne? Uh, could you, are you supporting your electricity customers uh, with, uh, I don't know, can you provide grants or can you do energy as a service sort of solutions with heat pumps, with electric vehicle charging? Um, is, is there something that the private sector can do to help the rollout of, of this with the uh, increased demand of electrified solutions? Um, yes, and, and we do it uh, already. For example, uh, we, we provide uh, special, um, let's say, financing mechanisms uh, for, for consumers to be able to invest in uh, in the heat pumps. Uh, so let's say we, we would take part of the investment uh, costs and then share uh, the savings uh, with the consumer uh, over time. So I guess that this kind of move really looking at what are the difficulties of, of customers when it comes to making this kind of investment decision is uh, part of the role of, of utilities if we want to uh, develop uh, electrification further. We are also very active in uh, electric mobility, in the deployment of charging points, looking at smart charging, how consumers can benefit uh, if uh, they charge at the right moment or if they send back electricity into the into the grid. I think that type of innovative uh, business model uh, will will help consumers ch uh, shift uh, to to these uh, electric solutions because they will see. Uh, the benefits and not only the higher investment cost. Hi everyone, David here again. Just a reminder that you and your colleagues can get premium access to the What Matters podcast and all of the in-depth journalism from Foresight Climate and Energy by subscribing. You can give us a try for 30 days for just €29, Euros, where you can access our website and audio app. Go to www.foresightdk.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes. Now, back to our conversation. Are the market rules in place, though, to support that then? Uh, if uh, you mentioned sort of vehicle-to-grid vehicle um, uh, technology there and, and providing grid services, is, there the, is the market framework and the regulations in place ready to... Um, Ready to meet the, the the demands of an electrified and decarbonized world. I think we have uh, we have the the basics uh, in place. Uh, the last revision of uh, the um, electricity market uh, legislation at EU level uh, brought some interesting elements on you know. Uh, better functioning, shorter markets on how to value uh, flexibility. Uh, but probably 
more can be done in terms of valuing this flexibility and the ability and willingness of, of consumers to um, to respond. So I guess this flexibility part should um, should be part of the discussion in the upcoming review of, of the market design as well, because we're moving to uh, a more digitalized uh, world as well, where these solutions are becoming easier to, to deploy. It's easier to aggregate uh, demand response. Uh, we have uh, projects, for example, to pilot fleets of, of vehicles. So you would have, for example, I don't know, f- uh, thousands of, of cars, uh, and we would be able to uh, build blocks of electricity, um, taking it from uh, a variety of, of vehicles and sell it back to the grid, and then being able to identify uh, the individual customers who participated and, and give them the benefits. So this is. Um, developing uh, and uh, and an upcoming review of, of the market design should take into account these developments. Marion, I, I would like to ask you a, a question about EDF um, and its approach to sort of investing in new generation technologies. You know, a lot of people think of EDF uh, as uh, you're primarily a company that's active in, in nuclear. I know that's, that's, that's not uh, um, entirely right, but um, w- w- what are sort of the key um, technologies that, that you're looking at at, at EDF um, going forward, where, where are you already investing? Uh, is there anything you want to sort of highlight um, that, that would be interesting for, for listeners to sort of learn a bit more about EDF's approach? Sure. So I guess that uh, all the listeners know that uh, EDF is is a very large nuclear player, probably the biggest player at a global level. Uh, maybe less uh, listeners know that EDF is the first producer of renewable electricity in Europe, um, looking at uh, hydropower, uh, PV, onshore wind and offshore wind. So we are looking, as you know, at um, investing in new uh, nuclear. Uh, There were very important announcements uh, by the President Macron recently uh, that uh, France would engage in a a program to build a new fleet of nuclear power plants. It's going to be a program uh, which uh, gives visibility uh, for such long-term investments and also allows for, um, let's say, a certain degree of, of standardization and synergies uh, in uh, w- when you build several plants. So that's, that's the first uh, part. We have very large uh, investments coming up in, uh, in developing new nuclear, but also in investing in the existing uh, nuclear power plants to make sure they, c- they can last, uh, they can last um, longer and be uh, perfectly safe. Uh, the second area is um, very high investments in uh, in renewables. Uh, we want to double uh, our installed capacity by 2030 and reach 60 uh, gigawatts at uh, global level. Uh, and there, of course, um, solar is important, but also wind, including offshore. Uh, a couple of days ago, uh, there was the inauguration of uh, the first offshore wind park in France, uh, which will be, uh, which is operated by by EDF, it's uh, eighty uh, windmills and uh, it's uh, four hundred eighty megawatts. So that's a large offshore wind park, and uh, we are heavily investing in this technology. Also, looking at uh, floating uh, offshore, we have a demonstrator uh, going on uh, on on this technology, which could be promising in. Um, 
in uh, in deeper uh, in deeper uh, waters such as the the Mediterranean. So I would say on on renewables, these are the the, the main uh, areas of uh, of investments. Of course, hydropower as well with with pumped uh, storage, and then. We are investing in electrification, uh, and uh, and here I already mentioned all uh, all the projects we have to develop uh, charging uh, stations, uh, smart charging, um, sharing data, uh, managing pools of, of vehicles and their interaction uh, with uh, with the grid. So uh, that's that's another area, and I would maybe finish with uh, with hydrogen. Uh, we have large projects uh, for hydrogen production, uh, electrolytic hydrogen production using renewable electricity, but also in France using low carbon electricity from the grid because we have a largely uh, decarbonized uh, power grid in France thanks to nuclear and uh, and renewables. So it would be quite easy to plug an electrolyzer on that and produce uh, quite low carbon uh, hydrogen for sectors that cannot be uh, electrified. And here I'm thinking about, uh, you know, maritime, uh, how to abate uh, industrial uh, processes. Um, so, yeah, that's a um, short landscape of, um, of the areas in which uh, EDF invests uh, beyond nuclear. And on, on nuclear, um, I mean, a lot of the... The things I've been sort of reading um, um, about the current electricity um, uh, crisis that we that we see with these high prices uh, is 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 sort of it's also linked to a lot of the nuclear plants currently being down in 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 France and not generating. Um, so France can't export as much electricity to other countries, uh, and and that creates additional pressure. Um, I've also seen announcements from EDF that I think early next year that there's an expectation that all or most of the plants that are currently not operating will be back on, on the grid. Um, is that something that you can confirm and, and sort of explain maybe a bit more sort of why we've seen so many plants not operating and and whether indeed you think they will be back online um, early next year? Yes, sure. So um, maybe to, to start with a clarification, um, our analysis and modeling shows that uh, the impact of uh, the French nuclear fleet being a little bit limited in its production uh, impacts uh, around 10, uh, 12, 15 percent um, of, of, the, of the market price at the moment. So all the rest comes from um, the high uh, gas prices. I just wanted to uh, to uh, to make uh, this clarification because I think it's important. So yes, uh, the situation on the on the nuclear fleet in France does contribute, uh, but the contribution is quite minor if you compare to the other um, key drivers of uh, of this crisis, which is uh, a crisis of of gas supply, as we discussed uh, earlier on. Um, the the situation on on the nuclear uh, fleet um, stems. First, uh, from uh, COVID, where we had some uh, maintenance uh, being delayed uh, and pushed back in time because uh, some uh, subcontractors were not uh, available. Uh, we had some limitations of how many people could be on site. Um, so that's uh, one part of the problem. And the second uh, part, uh, which is uh, bigger, is uh, obviously uh, a corrosion issue, which was uh, discovered on some power plants and um, 
safety is the first uh, priority. Safety is the first priority uh, for EDF, uh, for all uh, nuclear operators. And therefore, um, we are investigating uh, in close uh, relation with the, the French uh, Nuclear Safety Authority. Uh, and um, the way to solve uh, this corrosion issue is now uh, found and agreed uh, with the French uh, Nuclear Safety Authority. And now we're going uh, to fix the problem uh, plant by plant, let's put it this way. And that's why it takes uh, time uh, because we need lots of people to do this work. So we have to uh, do it in, in stages. And as soon as the problem is solved, then the, the plants can go back online. And that was that's the reason why there was this announcement that by February, we would have a good part of, uh, of the nuclear fleet um, back online as the works to, to fix uh, this uh, corrosion problem uh, will, uh, will be finalized progressively on all the plants that, um, that have it. So uh, we would hope for a better situation uh, at the beginning of, uh, of next year. Uh, I think if I may compliment this crisis uh, on the, let's say, the situation on the, on the French nuclear also uh, brought many people to the realization that Europe actually relies greatly on the French nuclear electricity for its security of supply and for its decarbonization. And I think that this is an important uh, realization. And right now, even if uh, part of, uh, of the nuclear power plants are not running, a good part are still running. And if they would not be there, <laughs> the crisis would be um, absolutely uh, worse than what it is uh, today. So uh, I think it is important to have all, all these elements in mind. Uh, Marianne, what do you envisage nuclear's role to be in the energy transition over the next sort of 10, 20 years? Uh, currently, nuclear provides around 25% of uh, electricity in the European Union. Do you see that share growing, falling, falling dramatically? Um, what, is, what is nuclear's role in, in the next sort of 10 to 20 years time? I think the role of, of nuclear in, in, the, in the share uh, will, will probably um, remain uh, stable uh, or, or decrease a little bit as uh, the amount of uh, electricity which is needed um, grows. But I believe that there will be a sustained role and a sustained share of, uh, of nuclear uh, in the system uh, right now. France has announced a new a new program, but uh, we know that there are many member states in Eastern Europe also looking at building a new nuclear, Czech Republic, um, Hungary, for instance. So, and and if you look at the scenarios uh, from uh, the European Commission, the reference uh, scenarios, uh, they don't talk about it so much. But if you look in detail, you will see that by 2050 they have 90 to 100 gigawatts of nuclear in the system compared to between 110 and 120 uh, today. And looking at um, the decommissioning profile, because many of these plants are quite old already, that means that you, the, the commission in its own scenarios um, thinks that there will be a need to build a large number of new nuclear power plants to have a system which is uh, fully decarbonized uh, and fully stable and can ensure security uh, of supply. So that's that's quite uh, 
uh, an interesting um, finding from the European Commission uh, modeling. Absolutely. I'm sure we could, uh, we need to do a whole uh, episode on nuclear and maybe we can invite you back to and we can go into the depths of that. Obviously, we want to focus on um, EU regulation and everything that's been going on with the energy crisis in the last sort of yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you, and maybe I wanted to bring Jan in on this question as well. Uh, you've both kind of worked in the electricity sector or the energy sector in Europe for more than a decade now. Uh, Marin, start you. What, what sort of changed uh, over that period from your perspective? And have we seen um, the sort of situation that we're in now? And have could we have predicted the situation that we're in now? If I, if I look back, um, I think that... Ten years ago, uh, the the growth in in renewables and the decrease in renewable costs uh, was not really uh, mainstream. So, I think that many people didn't see it coming uh, so so fast. So, if I look at ten years ago and where we are now, uh, the, there is a, a great game changer, which is um, our ability to build. Uh, cheaper uh, renewables at at a very large uh, at a very large scale. Um, the capacity of uh, of a windmill ten years ago is uh, probably uh, ten times less uh, than what we can do uh, today. So I think that's a, a true uh, game changer uh, over the the ten last years, and it opened uh, a real um, let's say it. it it made, makes it possible to, to fully decarbonize the power system, um, complementing uh, nuclear and, uh, and, and storage uh, technologies. Yeah, and how about you? What, what have you seen in the sort of, sort of 10 years or the time that you've been working in the sector? I think there's a lot more clarity and consensus about the trajectory going forward now. That, that would be one thing I would want to highlight. And even in countries that have not been known as climate leaders. You, know, you may think of Poland, for example. We're now seeing a very significant shift in investment, but also government policy that supports a transition to low-carbon energy. I think that's evident now, and 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 that's that's you know, driven by a large extent. Uh, by by economics and you know renewables just haven't got have gotten a lot cheaper you know b- back in the day renewables were often more expensive and one had to make a case for providing subsidies and to make to make a viable business case for renewables that has really changed now with you know unsubsidized renewables being built that was unthinkable uh, just a decade ago um, but i think the other piece in this is that there is now more focus on the demand side. It's still not enough from my perspective. I think we need to do an awful lot more on the demand side uh, to encourage fuel switching, flexibility, uh, decentralized generation, energy efficiency, all of these things. But uh, yeah, we have firm energy savings targets, for example. That, That was something the European Union did not have uh, in the past. And we now had this for um, yeah, quite quite a while, and and these kinds of things, uh, to me at least, seem uh, to indicate that we are on a good journey. We still have to do more. Yeah, you know, it's about acceleration, um, but it's not so much anymore about whether we should should do it at all. I think there's now much more consensus and much greater clarity, um, sort of what the destination is, and and yeah, you know, people are talking about. 
decarbonizing electricity already by the mid 2030s and Europe has indeed made a commitment to do that um yeah that is in 13 years time so we we got to do this at breakneck speed but there's certainly a lot more clarity and a momentum than there ever has been yeah if i if i can jump in i i fully fully agree with that because if i look at even only 5 years back you had ngos claiming that we can uh, decarbonize, let's say, 80% of uh, our economy by 2050. And, and that was perceived I, as, as crazy and, and overambitious and how could we ever get there? And, 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 and then you, you saw the, the, the momentum shifting and, uh, and right now we're all talking about a carbon neutral uh, scenario when when five years ago eighty percent people would would be reluctant to make scenarios that would achieve eighty percent of of decarbonization. Yeah, absolutely, it's changed so uh, rapidly already. Um, that brings me on to my final question, Marianne. If we could look into your crystal ball and look forward ten to twenty years time, uh, how do you see the electric uh, and energy landscape um, looking? like in that time frame. Yeah, so hopefully we're out of this uh, crisis in uh, in 10 years time, uh, hopefully even in in 3 4 or 5. Uh, but looking a little bit further, um I I really think that power system can be la- largely uh, decarbonized thanks to hydropower, wind, solar, new storage uh, and uh, and other new technologies that may uh, emerge and uh, and develop. This will allow uh, a a large amount of electrification, a large share uh, of electricity in, in transport buildings and uh, industry. We will have better insulated uh, buildings, more heat pumps, uh, more electric vehicles. Also, uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a society where maybe we will see more bikes and more uh, car sharing. So transport overall would become more, more sustainable. Um, and a system that will be more digitalized, um, allowing uh, the demand side to come in uh, in, uh, in, a, in a more uh, important uh, way. Uh, but what I think is that the system will still be um, at least partly centralized. I, I, I don't see a system which will be you know, only very small power plants and you consume only what you produce on, on your rooftop. Because that that would be quite inefficient and extremely uh, expensive. So I still believe that there will be some large um, generation uh, systems, hydropower, nuclear, large uh, offshore, combined with uh, smaller power plants scattered uh, in the in the um, in the in the member states. Uh, that all of this will be able to um, to be connected uh, and to contribute overall to, to security uh, of, uh, of supply of a decarbonized uh, system, but still partly uh, centralized, I, I think. Yeah, really interesting. Absolutely. I think, I think it'll still be more centralized than a lot of people uh, might imagine as well. Um, great. Thank you so much for your time today, Marion. Before we go then, uh, I'd like to go around the table and ask what caught your eye in the last uh, week or 10 days or so, something that's really made you pay attention. Uh, Jan, what's uh, caught your eye? Well, for me, it is um, a a new uh, leaflet um, by Bloomberg uh, New Energy Finance for policymakers that sort of summarizes some of the key data points of the energy transition and a really succinct and approachable uh, accessible way 
Um, so that that's that's a great resource if you just want to understand kind of globally what are the key trends. You know, are we building more nuclear, more renewables, more coal or gas, um, for example? You know, what has happened to costs over the last decade? So that's a great resource for uh, you know, policymakers, but also for analysts like myself and others uh, who will have a keen interest in understanding you know, those trends well. And it, it, you know, I can highly recommend the listeners to take a look at that. Great. Yeah, it looks really interesting um, and a very useful resource. Uh, Marianne, how about you? What caught your eye? Uh, I think I will I will come back to this uh, Saint-Nazaire uh, offshore uh, wind park because it is uh, a true milestone for EDF, uh, a milestone for France, a milestone for, for the offshore um, technology. So it gives great hope of, of what we can do as a company and um, what uh, can, can be done in, in the field of, uh, of, of renewables. Um, and it, it is also food for thought uh, in terms of, uh, you know, how, how to make permitting uh, faster and, and better for such projects because uh, we started working on, on Saint-Nazaire uh, literally uh, 10 years ago, over a decade ago. Uh, so now it's running. It's it's good news. Uh, but let's you know take take stock and learn the lessons uh, to make uh, it easier uh, to develop renewables. Yeah, absolutely. Accelerate that process uh, across Europe, uh, not just in France. Uh, for me, um, what caught my eye? I saw I saw a uh, interview with the uh, founder of fracking company Quadrilla uh, in the UK uh, this week. Uh, the new Prime Minister Liz Truss and her team uh, lifted the moratorium on fracking. Um, which seems bizarre uh, in itself, but there we go. Um, but the Guardian newspaper had an interview with the founder of Quadrilla, um, Chris Cornelius, uh, who's no longer with the company. But in, in the interview, he said um, that fracking uh, won't work in the UK uh, and it simply just doesn't make any sense. And it's simply a political gesture from the new administration uh, and that the UK's uh, geology uh, doesn't really uh, match uh, with fracking. Um, so that was really interesting for me. I thought that was quite a, a strong statement from him uh, and um, really sort of knocks down the government's arguments uh, straight away there. Um, yeah, and we haven't really mentioned fracking on this podcast. Yeah, that deserves another episode, I think, Dave. Um, it's, a, it's a fascinating topic and uh, we, should, we should probably plan an episode just around that. Oh, we will indeed. We will indeed. That's all we have time for today. My thanks to Marion, Jan and our producer, Anna. If you have any thoughts or questions about anything we've said, said on today's podcast, you can reach us on our Twitter accounts. I'm on at DaveW underscore Foresight. Jan? Um, I'm on Jan Rosenau. And Marion? I'm on Marion Labatut. Uh, if you have any questions for the team, you can also tweet the show at What Matters Pod or email us at show at whatmatterspodcast.com. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you all next time. Thank you.